This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. People with multiple chronic conditions represent about 5% of the patient population in the United States, but account for half of the nation's healthcare spending. In order to improve care and reduce cost overall, there's an urgent need to do a better job of treating these patients, according to a recent perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine from the heads of five leading healthcare foundations. We spoke to David Blumenthal president of the Commonwealth Fund, and one of the authors of the piece about why improving care for this population is critical, why there's not a single solution to treating what is actually a diverse population of patients, and what these foundations are doing to address the problem. David, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Nice to be with you. We're going to discuss caring for high-need, high-cost patients, your recent perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine, and why this needs to be an urgent priority. Let's start with what's meant by high-need, high-cost patients. Who are they? These are patients who are uh, extremely complicated, generally have multiple chronic conditions, often have difficulties of one kind or another in caring for themselves and, and limitations that, that reduce their mobility. And that combination of conditions and limitations tends to require that they get lots of care and that they interact frequently with our healthcare system. And as a result, they tend to be high utilizers of care and costly individually to care for. There's a, a humanitarian case to be made for why these patients deserve greater attention, but I'd like you to make the financial argument why it's important that we do a better job of serving this population of patients. What is that? Well, the, the American economy and government spending are highly impacted by our healthcare spending in general, and it increasingly dominates as a cause of our budget deficit, it requires state governments to spend an increasing proportion of their budget on programs like Medicaid. The result is reduced spending on other vital programs like education, uh, public uh, housing, uh, food and nutrition, and, and uh, for uh, underserved populations infrastructure, all the other things that make society a whole healthy. So, and of course, the biggest cause of deficits at the federal level, uh, one of the biggest causes is Medicare and Medicaid spending. So we can't uh, address our nation's 
financial future unless we control, make our healthcare spending more efficient and more effective. If you want to do that, the Willie Sutton principle kind of prevails, and that is you look for where the money is, and the money is in this group of individuals. How much of our spending actually goes to care for these people? Well, we common the common statistic is that these constitute the five percent of patients who account for fifty percent of healthcare spending. Despite the fact that half of the nation's healthcare spending goes to serve these patients, you note there's a tendency to oversimplify this population and mischaracterize it as people who are at the end of their lives. This is actually a fairly heterogeneous population. Can you give a sense of the different types of patients we're talking about and how that complicates getting the right care to the people who need it? Sure. But we are actually at the the current time doing research to try to be more precise about the differences within this, this group of patients. As a matter of fact, hard to even call them a group because they are so heterogeneous. They, they do include some patients who are near the end of life, but they also include many other types of patients. For example, individuals who are likely to live a very long time if they get good care, but who have multiple chronic conditions and the kinds of impairments that I just recently spoke about. They also include people who have severe behavioral health problems that are persistent over time, diseases like schizophrenia and manic depressive disorder or very severe depression and substance abuse problems. They include uh, individuals who have a single very severe long-term illness like severe forms of arthritis that require expensive pharmaceuticals uh, that are now available, uh, but and that give them great relief, but can, they can never stop taking. So it, as you can see, it, it's a pretty diverse group of individuals. Some of them, some people in this category enter and leave it. That is, they get sick for a brief period of time, a matter of years, and then recover. People with cancers might fall in that category. Some people with cancer, though, uh, end up living in that category for the duration of their lives. You talk about segmenting these populations into more homogenous groups and designing interventions to more appropriately meet their needs. There have been a number of programs uh, that serve as models that have been successful. What are some of those programs and, and how have they worked? Well, among them are uh, programs like the PACE program, P-A-C-E, which stands stands for the Program of All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, which has been fairly widely implemented, but nowhere uh, near as widely as needed to really bring under control the costs and improve quality generally of this population. That tends to be a program that's best suited to the very elderly, frail patients, uh, which is one type of uh, individual. There are programs of intensive care coordination and primary care, especially, for example, for homebound frail elders. The Independence at Home program, which was pioneered by the Affordable Care Act, has shown some promise in keeping homebound elders out of the hospital. And there are other 
programs that are under evaluation, uh, comprehensive primary care initiatives that are not home-oriented but take place out of uh, outpatient medical home settings. In general, these programs tend to have several characteristics in common, though we are still learning about them. They all emphasize primary care. They almost all involve multidisciplinary, multiprofessional teams that include nurses and doctors and care managers that are may or may not be highly trained professionals, and that collectively evaluate the needs of a high-need, high-cost patient and design a program that is particularly suited to that individual's needs. One of the most important characteristics of these programs is that they target patients very carefully. They don't, uh, they don't focus their expensive resources on patients who don't need them. They focus on the patients who are most likely to benefit. And the result is that they maximize their cost effectiveness. You, you note that despite having successful models like these, they're, they're often not replicated. Why don't we see successful programs copied and made more widely available? Well, there are a variety of reasons. One is that in the fee-for-service payment environment that has dominated and mostly does still dominate our healthcare system, when you are successful in controlling the cost of care for these individuals, you're also reducing revenues for healthcare providers. <clears throat> so they sound great in theory, but once implemented, they may result in less volume of services for hospitals, for specialists, uh, for nursing homes, and other other actors who uh, benefit from the fees they collect from the services provided. So one of the most important obstacles has been the lack of business case for investing in preventing, sir, preventing the problems that these patients face. Another is that the models are not very well accepted or uh, are not easily adapted by traditional providers. They involve collaboration across professions. They involve sharing of responsibilities. They often involve new types of providers like case managers. And this requires professional flexibility and changes in very ingrained professional patterns that may not be comfortable for current healthcare providers. So uh, there are both financial and cultural reasons that these programs don't spread as fast as it makes sense for them to, uh, and we hope the environment is changing. You, you talk about this financial misalignment of incentives. One of the things the Affordable Care Act has sought to do is spread more value-based approaches to, to medicine. Is, is that something that's a viable solution using kind of a value-based model? It's a very promising solution. It needs to be refined and, and spread more widely, but it does hold a very, very important potential benefit, and that is that it focuses providers on getting people better, regardless of whether their revenues go up. And the reason is that if people get healthier, the providers make more money. 
and keeping them out of the hospital, therefore, benefits the provider as well as the patient. That is a very important permissive aspect of some of the reforms that have been encouraged under the Affordable Care Act, particularly through programs that are under the aegis of a new innovation center called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which was created by the Affordable Care Act. What role do you see technology playing in proving care for these patients? And do you think remote monitoring will, will be part of the solution? There will be important technology, technological components to a, a to the improving uh, approaches to care that that are likely to develop if incentives are are supportive. Uh, I think technology in the form of information collection, electronic information collection and sharing, is one important technological solution. We have seen the emergence of a variety of remote monitoring techniques. I think it's still premature to to late to determine whether they are all or some of them are going to be cost effective, but I think the likelihood is they will be. Uh, it's very important to realize that the remote monitoring generates information about people. That information is only useful if it leads to actions that are beneficial both for health and for cost reduction. And uh, information itself is not always a benefit. It's only a benefit if we can act decisively and effectively based upon it. So we need to know which forms of remote monitoring and which forms of electronic, non-traditional electronic data collection actually yield results for this and for other populations. As you noted earlier, the Commonwealth Foundation is collaborating with a group of other foundations, including the John A. Hartford Foundation, the Peterson Center on Healthcare, the SCAN Foundation, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to improve care and affordability for high-need, high-cost patients. What exactly are you trying to do? Well, we are, at the moment, trying first and foremost to inform people about what is known with regard to caring for this group of patients so that organizations that are motivated by new payment incentives and new programs under the Affordable Care Act and are looking for solutions will know what the best solutions are. So the first thing we're doing is collecting what's known and sharing it. We hope, I think, down the line to generate new information uh, and to promote improved policies with respect to this patient population. Once you define solutions, what do you think it will take to get stakeholders to adopt them? I think aligned incentives and the motivation to make the changes that are required by these new programs. We have not finished designing as a group what we are going to be doing with respect to the population and the programs and policies that are required. So I think it's uh, still early for comment on where we're heading, but we're going to be looking under uh, under every, uh, we're going to be looking for wherever we can to find uh, solutions that make difference. David Blumenthal, President of the Commonwealth Fund. David, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, 
subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.